I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Additional History, Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I pick a famous date from history and then look through old newspapers from the exact same day to find out what else was going on around the country and world at the same time as some of history's most important moments. Today's famous date is November 30th, 1922. A few days before an official announcement was made, and a few days before the story made it into newspapers all over the world, something amazing happened all the way over in Egypt. This event is still significant and talked about today, almost a hundred years later. Although this event was a big deal at the time it happened, it became an even bigger deal as days and then months and then years passed. Newspapers printed stories about it over and over again because the thing they originally thought to be good was starting to be believed as something bad that had happened. Are you confused yet? Or do you think you know what I'm talking about? Well, let me help you out. Today's headline comes from the Norwich Bulletin out of Norwich, Connecticut. It says, Sensational Egyptological Discovery of the Century. Friends, November 30th, 1922, marked the day that newspapers began shouting from the rooftops that famous English archaeologist Howard Carter had opened the tomb of King Tutankhamun. As a child, I used to dream about becoming an archaeologist and traveling to far-off places like Egypt, where I could dig around in the dirt and find fascinating historical treasures. Heck, I still dream about becoming an archaeologist and finding cool things. Just ask my kids about all the historical documentaries and treasure hunting shows I watch. Anyway, Howard Carter and his team had been working in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt for years, and they hadn't really made any significant finds. Carter's financial sponsor was so unhappy with the results of the explorations that he gave Carter one last season to find something or he was going to pull the funding. Luckily, that's when Carter's team found the tomb of King Tut. King Tut's tomb is one of, if not the most well-preserved burial sites in all of Egypt. When Carter entered the tomb, he found an unbelievable sight. A gem-studded throne, furniture, exquisite robes, statues, vases, remnants of food that had been left from King Tutankhamun's journey, a chariot, and many papyrus writings. It wasn't until a couple of months later, in February of the next year, that Howard Carter entered the final chamber of the tomb, the chamber that held the king's sarcophagus. The coffin was made of several layers, with the innermost layer made of solid gold, The mummified remains of King Tut inside were immaculate. There was so much stuff inside the tomb that it took decades for everything to be researched and preserved correctly. Now, earlier I mentioned that the opening of King Tut's tomb was seen as a bad thing by some people. Well, that's because even before it was opened, rumors went around that anyone that disturbed one of the burial sites of the kings and queens buried in the Valley of the Kings would be cursed. And, just two months after the chamber containing King Tutankhamun's body was opened, Lord Carnarvon, the man who financed the dig in the first place, and who entered the burial chamber with Howard Carter, died from an infection 
from a mosquito bite on his cheek. Growing up, I knew about the curse of King Tut, and I believed that many people died from the supposed curse, and that's why it was talked about so much. But in researching who actually died for this episode of the podcast, it turns out that the number of deaths attributed to the curse is far lower than what I've been led to believe in the past. Only a handful of people actually made the cut, and they all died quite a few years after the tomb was open, including Howard Carter, who didn't die for 16 or 17 more years, living to be 64 years old. The death rate for those who had anything to do with the opening of the tomb or working in the Valley of the Kings wasn't any higher than for those who didn't have anything to do with Egyptian mummies. It kind of takes the fun out of the story, but such is life. Anyway, as fun as it is to talk about King Tut, and believe me, I had to restrain myself from going into great detail about the items found in his chambers, this podcast isn't about the famous history-making dates. No, it's about what else was happening on those days, what else was being written about in newspapers. So, let's see what else we can unbury. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a story out of The Morning Call, a paper published in Allentown, Pennsylvania. This is a strange story that was printed in a lot of different newspapers during the last few days of November. I'll read you the headline in a minute. The article tells the story of a woman named Anna Lenz. Anna was 30 years old and lived in Chilton, Wisconsin. Chilton is a very small town now, and it was even smaller in the 1920s, with a population of less than 2,000 people. As sometimes happens in small towns, when gossip and rumors start to circulate, it doesn't take very long for them to make the rounds throughout the entire population. And that was the case of Anna Lenz. You see, Anna insisted that a woman was spreading rumors about her, rumors that were very damaging to her reputation. The accused woman was identified in the article as Mrs. Henry Schneider, and also as Mrs. Harry Schneider. But since this was 1922, her first name was never given, of course. Anyway, whatever it was that Mrs. Schneider was telling people, or supposedly telling people, made Anna Lenz so angry that she decided her only option for repercussion was to murder Mrs. Schneider. So... Anna went to the store, and she bought herself a couple of things. First, she bought some poison, and then she bought a chocolate candy bar. Then she went home and inserted the poison into the chocolate. Finally, in what she thought was a smart move, she mailed the poison chocolate bar to her nemesis. Now, at this point, I can only assume Anna was feeling pretty good, thinking that she was about to get back at her enemy, and I should note here also that I honestly don't know if Anna was trying to murder Mrs. Schneider or just make her sick, but evidence seems to point toward the former. Either way, a few days after the package went out, Anna heard that Mrs. Frank Schneider had suddenly passed away. Did you catch that? Mrs. Frank Schneider passed away, not Mrs. Henry Schneider or Mrs. Harry Schneider. Anna sent the package to the wrong person. And I guess now would be as good of time as any to read you the headline I skipped before. It says, Mailed Poison to the Wrong Person. 
I have no idea if the two Mrs. Schneiders lived close to each other and that's why Anna got the wrong address. Or if she didn't know the woman well enough to know what her husband's name was, so she guessed. Or something else. I'm not sure. I do know that Mrs. Frank Schneider was a sister-in-law to Mrs. Henry Schneider, the accused rumor spreader. And sadly, Mrs. Frank Schneider, the deceased, was the mother of eight children. As soon as Anna realized her mistake, she went to the home of the deceased woman and began to snoop around her home until she found both the candy bar wrapper and the packaging she'd used to melt it. Then she took all of the stuff out of the home so she could destroy the evidence. Luckily for the police, they got a break. They knew that Mrs. Schneider had received a package of candy, and all they had to do was make a few inquiries to local businesses, and they had their main suspect. You see, the grocer clearly remembered that Anna Lenz had come in and bought a chocolate bar. And the druggist clearly remembered that Anna Lenz had come in and bought poison. The mail carrier remembered picking up a package addressed to the Schneider residence from Anna Lenz right before the poisoning occurred. When confronted with all of the evidence, Anna knew there was no way out of it, and she quickly confessed to everything. Now, I couldn't possibly let this story end with just the one article. I wanted to know what kind of punishment Anna Lenz got. So I searched for more articles later on, and I found some more information in a December 9th article from the Sheboygan Press that the first article lacked. First, the name of the woman who passed away was Teresa Schneider. Second, the poison used to kill her was strychnine. A coroner's journey was called, and the results of the inquest were announced on December 9th. The jury found that Teresa Schneider had indeed died by poisoning and preliminary evidence, you know, like a confession, showed that Anna Lenz was responsible for the death. But after Anna confessed, she suffered some sort of breakdown and it took her a long time to recover enough to go to trial, so there was one delay after another. Her trial was set for December 19th, but she relapsed in her recovery right before then, and the judge again rescheduled her trial for January and said that it would be the last time he was willing to reschedule, even if she had to be carried into court on a cot. So, let's fast forward to the January 20th issue of the Sheboygan Press. That day's huge front page headline says, Dramatic Interruption of Lens Hearing. Apparently, when a witness pointed to Anna and said she was the person who mailed the poisonous package, Anna swooned dramatically. Now, typically swooning means to faint, but in this case, the writer of the article, who wasn't identified, added that Anna was epileptic and the slightest incident out of the ordinary would typically bring on seizures for her. So, I'm not sure if she fainted or had a seizure or both. Either way, the trial was yet again delayed. Finally, after many more delays and more examinations of her health, Anna was deemed unable to stand trial like a normal person and was instead committed to the, quote, state home for the feeble-minded in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. I'm not sure how long Anna remained in the institution, but according to findthegrave.com, she was found on the census reports there in the 1930s and 1940s. Census reports later than that haven't been released to the public yet. But when the 1950 census is released next year, I'm almost positive Anna will still be listed as a resident because when she passed away in 1990 at the age of 97, 
Her obituary said she was a resident of the Northern Wisconsin Center for the Developmentally Disabled in Chippewa Falls. That means she had been a resident of the home for nearly 70 years. As a final note on this story, I found it rather funny that an article after Anna's trial said that two of the doctors testifying in Anna's case had suddenly and unexpectedly died right after the trial. The article went on to compare the deaths to the curse of Tutankhamun and the death of Lord Carnarvon. Yes, people believed Anna Lenz was cursed. For my second additional history story today, I decided to tell you a story about something that made big headlines in quite a few newspapers on November 30th, 1922. The headline I chose comes from the Daily Clarion Progress out of Uplucis, Louisiana. It says, Arkansas riot is subdued. Now, this was a tricky story to figure out because every newspaper seemed to print a different version of events. And certain groups almost seemed glorified. Groups that should not be glorified. The story took place in a town called Smackover, Arkansas. Smackover is located in southern Arkansas, not far from the Louisiana border. At the beginning of 1922, there were only about 90 people living in the Smackover area. It was very small. Those that did live there mostly relied on cotton and timber for their livelihood. But all of that changed on July 1st of 1922. That was the day that Sidney Albert Umstead made a huge discovery at his sawmill. He struck oil. Word spread like wildfire, and in just a few months' time, more than 1,000 oil wells had been dug in the area. By November, the population of Smackover had swelled from those few 90 people to 25,000 people. Now, when a town goes from under 100 residents to 25,000 in just a few months, there's bound to be growing pains, right? Smackover was no exception. Along with the oil workers came people that were considered by many, including the article writers, to be undesirable. So in their minds, who were the undesirables? Well, that would be the saloon keepers and gamblers and prostitutes. The Daily Clarion Progress called them denizens of the underworld, and everybody wanted them gone. 25 people petitioned for Smackover to officially be incorporated as a town, and on November 3rd, just a few weeks before our article was written, their wish was granted. It was official. However, the lawlessness from the denizens of the underworld was so incredibly bad in the area that none of those who wanted the town incorporated in the first place were willing to hold public office. That's pretty bad. Now, if you remember, our headline mentioned a riot. But it seems that every article printed about the subject blames a different reason for the riot. One source said it was the murder of an oil worker named Ed Cox on November 24th. The next night, another oil worker named Cotton Parsons was killed, and some say that was the reason for the riot. Another paper said someone was killed on the 26th, and still another paper said it started when someone was tarred and feathered. No matter how it started, it started. And on November 27th, 200 vigilantes wearing white robes and masks went through Smackover, holding up signs telling gamblers and other lawless men that they had 24 hours to leave the area or else. 
So just who were these vigilantes? Well, it was widely believed and published that they were members of the Ku Klux Klan. Is there any truth to that? None that can be proved, and the Klan denied all involvement in the riot. Some believed it was just a matter of trying to make more sensationalized stories. The next day, the vigilantes returned and began driving people from the most notorious gambling resorts. The vigilantes even went so far as to drag some people out and whip them. During their raid, either Slim Sanders or E.J. Wood, partners in one of the most prominent gambling houses, was killed. Again, which man was killed depends on which newspaper or source you look at. The fighting continued through the night with people on both sides of the fight firing shots. Just like before, the newspapers couldn't quite make up their minds on how many people were killed, with some papers reporting that as many as 65 people died that night. The Daily Clarion Progress reported that they pulled the area doctors and assumed that 15 people had come in search of help to fix their injuries. But other than the death of Slim Sanders or E.J. Wood, nobody else died. I'm pretty sure that's a much more accurate account than the dozens of people dead that other papers reported. By December 1st, just a day or two later, over 1,000 people had taken the advice, if you could call it that, of the vigilantes and hopped on trains to get out of the area. So what do you think? Were the vigilantes in the right? Were they trying to keep their Prohibition-era town clean? Or were they trying to force their morals on others? It was definitely a unique situation. For my last additional history story from November 30th, 1922, I'm taking a headline from an article in the Los Angeles Times. This headline says, Speeding Actress in Cell. When I first looked at this article, it was with a little bit of curiosity, but I honestly didn't expect it to be a full additional history story. However, after reading about it and laughing, I figured I might as well share it with all of you as well. The actress referred to in the headline was a woman named Edith Sterling. I've shared a lot of stories of old Hollywood since this podcast began because newspapers love to write about that kind of stuff, and I like to read about it. Edith Sterling wasn't your typical actress of that time period, though. She was known for her horse riding skills and had even been a rodeo star at one time. She became known as one of America's most famous cowgirls. In the 1910s, she started movie after movie after movie as a cowgirl, and was even known to use both her fists and guns to fight off the bad guys in her movies, something that just wasn't typical for a woman to do in movies back then. But by the time the 1920s rolled around, Edith's popularity was waning, and she was most often cast as the damsel in distress, like most women. By 1923, the year after this article was written, Edith had pretty much left Hollywood and opted to perform in vaudeville acts instead. And then she toured with a circus, and eventually she managed a rest home. Basically, Edith lived a very full and unique life. So since our headline says, Speeding Actress in Cell, what happened? Was Edith going too fast on her horse? Nope. She was driving her car too fast, and the judge in the area was tired of speeders in his town. So... He announced that he would no longer tolerate speeding or forgive speeding with just a minor punishment or fine. Nope. Anyone caught speeding would spend time in jail. When people didn't take him seriously, he proved just how serious he was. 
The day before our article was written, dozens of people were in court because they'd been caught speeding in the Hollywood area. Edith was one of them. Now, I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but November 30th, 1922 was actually Thanksgiving Day. So all those people who went to traffic court had gone the day before the holiday. Anyway, Edith had been pulled over, and she was not happy that she was being threatened with jail time right at Thanksgiving. Of all the people in court that day, she was the first to go in, and the judge asked her how fast she was going. She answered that she thought she'd been going 35 miles per hour. He then asked her if she had a driver's license, and she said she didn't currently. For that charge, she was ordered to pay $10, an amount that would be about $150 today. It's an annoying amount to pay, but it's not the end of the world for most people. Then the judge got around to sentencing her for speeding and announced that her punishment was five days in jail. According to the article, as soon as the judge made that announcement, Edith, quote, blew up and expressed herself in no uncertain terms regarding police courts, motorcycle officers, and jails. Edith then stamped her foot on the ground and complained that she couldn't miss Thanksgiving because she'd already been making all the food preparations and it was supposed to be a big deal. The unsympathetic judge said, too bad, and sent her off to jail. So I'm sure you're wondering just how fast Edith was going, right? I mean, to be sentenced to almost a week in jail for speeding must have meant she was going outrageously fast, right? Well, she was caught going 37 miles per hour. Yes, you heard that right. 37 miles per hour. I looked and looked but couldn't find what the posted speed limit was, but judging by other areas at that time, I'm guessing it was probably somewhere around 20 miles per hour in town and 30 to 35 miles per hour on country roads. Edith Sterling wasn't the only one to be sentenced to jail time that day. One by one, the judge called 27 other people who had been ordered to appear in court that day and sentenced every single one of them to jail time, with the exception of one man, Harold Hartingen, who said he was speeding because he was trying to get to the bedside of his dying mother when he was caught going, wait for it, 28 miles per hour. His sentence was suspended. Now, I found it interesting that every person sentenced got two days of jail time, except Edith, who got five. I'm not sure if it was because she was a woman and everyone else was male, or if it was because she was somewhat famous and the judge wanted to make an example of her, or if it was because at 37 miles per hour, she was one of the fastest speeders of all the speeders that day. I mean, some of the ones sentenced were only going 26 miles per hour when they were pulled over and sentenced to jail. Anyway, after sentencing all the drivers of cars, the judge moved on to motorcyclists. One man was sentenced to 10 days in jail for riding without a license plate at 45 miles per hour. Now, as bad as all of these punishments sound, at least those people showed up to their trials. There were 80 other people who didn't show up to their court hearings that day, and the judge issued bench warrants for every last one of them. He called them fugitives and said their punishments would be doubly bad when the law caught up with them. As far as Edith goes, she wasn't about to let a little gel time mess up her career. So knowing that she had a new show opening up just a couple of days after she was to be released from jail, she took the time to practice her horse riding act. And since she couldn't have her real horse inside a gel, she used a chair to practice her balancing skills. 
The Los Angeles Evening Express posted a picture of her balancing on a chair in her jail cell the day after she was imprisoned. The next day after that, the San Francisco Examiner posted a picture of poor Edith making a face as she scrubbed dishes. You see, she didn't get to just waste her time sitting around for five days. No, she was expected to do all the dishes for the prison, including the dishes on which everyone's Thanksgiving dinner was served, even though she didn't actually get any turkey. When she complained about a sore back, she was handed a mop and told to scrub the floors. I'm pretty sure it's safe to say she was being used as an example. I'll share a copy of those pictures from the newspaper in the additional history headlines you probably missed Facebook group if you want to see the lovely Edith for yourself. So, after doing all that manual labor and spending almost a week in jail, did Edith Sterling learn her lesson and stop speeding? Not quite. In July of the next year, she was caught speeding again in Pasadena. That time, she was charged a $25 fine and sentenced to five more days in jail. But as she was being escorted out of the courtroom, she got sassy and said, I've been in better jails than this. For that comment, the judge added two additional days onto her sentence. She later told people that Santa Barbara was the best because they let her go on just a fine and a promise. For today's advertisement, I found an ad for R.L. Thompson, the grocery man in the Union Appeal out of Union, Mississippi. This ad says in big, bold words, Notice to ladies, remember this is the time for you to begin cooking your Thanksgiving and Christmas fruitcakes. I have everything it takes. Flour, sugar, baking powder, cream of tartar, citron, orange pill, lemon pill, currants, raisins, nuts, etc. A fresh stock of everything good to eat. I would appreciate a portion of your grocery business. Nowadays, Christmas fruitcakes are the victims of countless jokes, but in 1922, they were a must for every household during the holidays. Friends, thanks for joining me as we took a look at what else was happening the same day King Tut's tomb was opened for the first time. I hope you learned something new. Join me this Thursday for a mini-episode about a mystery that has fascinated me for years. Maybe you've heard the story before, and maybe you haven't but you'll have to listen to find out. Then I'll be back again next Monday for an all-new full episode. Talk to you later.